in a garage in 1976, a group of guys started a computer company that changed the world. You probably know the name of one of those guys, Steve Jobs, who for the next 35 years until his death in 2011 became the face of Apple computers. You may have heard of the other Steve that was involved, Steve Wozniak. He was an electronics engineer who helped Steve Jobs to begin to develop microcomputers. There was, however, a third founder of Apple Computers. In fact, he wrote the first partnership agreement between those who founded the company. And he also wrote the manual for the Apple I computer. He even drew the first Apple logo for the company. His name was Ronald Wayne. And the reason you've never heard of Ronald Wayne was because less than two weeks after founding Apple, he was given a stake of 10% of the company. But before those two weeks were up, he sold that stake for $800. Had he kept that stock, it would be worth more than $55 billion today. You might say that Ronald Wayne wasted an opportunity. Well, life is full of opportunities. Some of them we don't even recognize until too late. We look back and we say, well, yes, that was an opportunity that I missed. But too often we do recognize opportunities, but we don't see how significant or important they actually are, and so we don't take full advantage of them. At times, we just dismiss opportunities altogether because we just don't appreciate them. Well, today in our study of Romans chapter 10, as we come to the end of that chapter, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul speaks of the Jews of his day being responsible for wasting opportunities that God had given to them. Our text is Romans chapter 10, verses 18 through 21. Romans 10, 18 through 21. It's found on page 946 of the Bible that's provided for you. And I encourage you to get a copy of Scripture in front of you because we're just going to look at these words inspired by the Spirit of God, written down by the Apostle Paul for our benefit today. So find Romans chapter 10, verses 18 through 21, and follow along as I read these verses out loud. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. If you miss salvation, it's your own fault. That's the point the Apostle Paul is making here at the end of Romans 10 as he speaks about his fellow Jews. Paul is very concerned about the spiritual state of those Jews. In fact, we see it in the very first verse of Romans 10 where he writes that his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And yet, most of them were not being saved. Why? 
because they did not believe that Jesus was their Messiah. In fact, most of the Jews in Paul's day were highly offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the message that Paul preached, that he taught everywhere that he went. And the Jews hated the gospel and hated him for preaching the gospel. They saw themselves as God's special people, as privileged above all the people on earth and therefore acceptable by God, to God by virtue of their own efforts. In other words, they believed that they were righteous before God because of their Jewishness, because simply they were Jews. Paul understood this because that's exactly the way that he thought about himself before God saved him. Paul believed that he was good enough for God. He was a rising star among the ranks of the Pharisees. During that time of his life, he hated Christianity. He hated individual Christians. He helped to persecute Christians, traveling from city to city to help arrest them, to see them imprisoned and even executed. Well, it was while he was on one of his murderous missions that he met Jesus Christ miraculously. And he bowed to Christ as Lord. And he was converted out of his wrong way of thinking and living and began to be established in the right way of living. He came to realize that he needs a Savior. And he came to believe that Jesus is the Savior that he needs. Paul writes about this change that happened to him in Philippians chapter 3. And in that chapter, he's talking about how Christians are people who put no confidence in the flesh. That is, we put no confidence in our own efforts to make ourselves right with God because we know our works are not good enough. But then listen to the way he takes that and applies it to his own experience, giving us a bit of his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives us his resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So that was Paul before he met Jesus. But then he goes on and tells what happened after he met Jesus. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. God opened Paul's eyes. And when that happened, Paul looked at how he'd been living as a Pharisee, aspiring to righteousness through his own eyes. And he recognized that all of his efforts, all of that righteousness that he thought he had earned was like sheep dung. Rubbish. Horrible. Why? 
because it was keeping him from the righteousness that he needed. The righteousness God provided in Jesus Christ that he came to receive through faith. And when Paul was converted like this, his eyes were opened. And as a Jewish man, as a leader among the Jews, his heart broke for his fellow Jews that they too might come to see and believe what he had come to see and believe by the grace of God, that they would come to know Jesus Christ as Messiah. Paul began to understand for the first time after his conversion how the Lord had revealed this truth in the Old Testament. That his scriptures taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And faithful Jews who had the Old Testament scriptures should have known this. God repeatedly taught them this in the Old Testament. They had opportunity to know this way of salvation by grace. But they squandered those opportunities. Children, do you know what the word squander means? It's a good word, or at least it's a word that is good to know. It's a word that means to waste. Or to fail to take full advantage of an opportunity or a blessing. Well, Paul's been arguing that most of his fellow Jews have just done just that with the gospel. They failed to take advantage of it having been made known to them in the Old Testament Scriptures. And along with that, their offense at the thought that Gentiles were coming to know God was also unwarranted. It was something they should not have had. Why? Because their very Scriptures, our Old Testament, told them this was what God was going to do. The Old Testament says that God's going to save Gentiles as well as Jews the same way, by grace, through faith. In verse 16 of Romans 10, Paul makes the point that most Jews of his day have not obeyed the gospel. That is, they've not heeded the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. They've not believed this message. They've not been reconciled to God through believing this message. Now, in our text today, Paul explains that such Jews are without excuse because God gave them many opportunities to hear and understand that message. Tragically, however, they squandered those opportunities. In verses 18 through 21, we can identify three ways that they did this. And by carefully considering Paul's argument this morning about the way the his fellow Jews squandered opportunities to be saved. My hope and prayer is that we will come to see today the danger of squandering opportunities God's given us and that we will learn from their mistakes and seize the opportunities afforded to us today. When in verse 18, we see the first point Paul makes about this, that the Jews heard from God. God actually spoke to them but they didn't really listen to him. They didn't heed what he said. In verse 18, he asks this question rhetorically. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. They definitely had heard the gospel that they were not obeying, according to verse 16. 
Now, Paul phrases this rhetorical question in a way to imply an affirmative answer. He uses a double negative. It doesn't come across in English as clearly as it when he wrote it in the Greek language. But there's an emphatic affirmation that he adds to this. Indeed, they have. That's the force of the rhetoric of that question. And then he quickly goes on to support his assertion that yes, they are responsible. They had heard the gospel by quoting from Psalm number 19. He takes this statement from Psalm 19 verse 4 and he introduces it with that little word for. So we know that he's now going to prove the assertion that he has just made that yes, they have heard. Psalm 19.4, as we heard read earlier by Don, says their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. This is a reference to creation. Psalm 19 celebrates God's revelation both in creation as well as in special ways through inscripturation and through the, the Bible, through written words. Natural revelation is acknowledged in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. And then special revelation, the scripture, is celebrated and acknowledged in verses 7 through 11. But Paul here cites verse 4 of Psalm 19, which is a specific reference to God's general revelation. Let me just remind you, again, we heard it, but let me remind you in Psalm 19, it begins this way, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then verse 4, the heavens creation is further described in this way, their voice goes out through all creation, or through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. So the psalmist is telling us that God's voice is heard in the created order. Day after day, sunrise after sunset. The movement of seasons. All of this is God speaking. You see, it's right for us to understand that God has two books that He's written. One is the book of natural revelation. We see it every day. We experience it right here, right now, because we're breathing God's air. And anytime you see beauty in creation, anytime you see creativity in the world, this is God speaking. God's natural revelation. And then he has a book of special revelation, the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. And we teach from that book because that book helps us to understand everything else in the world that God has done and is doing. And both books that God has written speak truth. They tell us the truth about God and His world. When Paul cites Psalm 19.4, from the book of natural revelation. He's not confusing general revelation with the gospel. Rather, he's using Psalm 19.4 to underscore the universality of the gospel. That it goes out to the whole world, the gospel, just as surely as the voice of creation goes out to the whole world. In other words, there's no restriction on the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no person, there's no place that we would look at and say, well, no, that one, that situation doesn't deserve the gospel. The gospel's not for them. No, the gospel 
is the only gospel we have, the only way of salvation. It's to be preached to everyone, everywhere. It's never to be restricted. Paul consistently viewed the gospel in this way. And so we have sometimes some statements from him that might make you wonder, well, exactly what does he mean? Like in Colossians, the letter to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, he refers to the gospel bearing fruit among the Colossian Christians, and then he says it this way, as indeed it does in the whole world. The whole world? The whole world? Yes, the gospel is for everyone. Wherever it goes, it's going to bear fruit. And in verse 23 of Colossians 1, he says the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This idea that the gospel is universal, the gospel is not restricted, it's not limited. And indeed, wherever there are people, we should take the gospel to them, knowing that this gospel is for everyone. The spread of the gospel took place exactly the way that Jesus said that it would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He tells his disciples there that it will first be proclaimed. They will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and then beyond the city to Judea and then beyond Judea to Samaria and then beyond Samaria to the very ends of the world. The good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ was never designed to be kept in a limited circle of people. It has always been for the whole world And the fact that Gentiles were hearing and believing it in Paul's day is proof that it was spreading without regard to geopolitical or ethnic boundaries. The Jews of Paul's day were without excuse. They had opportunity to hear from their own scriptures that God provides salvation in Jesus Christ to anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Him. Their own scriptures were about Jesus. Jesus himself makes this point in John chapter 5. When there were some Jews who were not pleased with him that were trying to trip him up, and he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These scriptures that the Jews were searching Jesus said, they bear witness to me. Had they rightly understood their scriptures, they would have bowed to Jesus Christ as God's Messiah. Their problem was not lack of opportunity. Their problem was an unwillingness to bow to Christ as Lord. And that's true for everyone who hears the gospel throughout all of history. It's true today. If you are not trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, it is not because you haven't had the opportunity. You're having the opportunity right now. You've had it up to this point as Graham welcomed us and set before us this gospel, this one way of coming before the true God through Jesus Christ. You've heard it in the songs that we've sung, in the scripture that's been read, in the prayers that have been prayed. If you're not trusting Christ, friend, it's your own fault. It's not God's fault. Christ has been set before you. This one way of salvation has been proclaimed to you. Some of you, time and time and time again for all your life. So your problem's not intellectual. It's moral. 
Your problem is in the lack of information. It's an unwillingness to submit yourself to the only Savior this world has. My hope and prayer has been today that you would not leave this place until you come to terms with those facts and recognize the incredible opportunity that God sets before you as He calls you again to turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord. Refuse to do this. Continue on your pathway toward damnation. And if you end in that destination, you will have no one to blame except yourself. So trust Christ. Believe Christ. Acknowledge the goodness of God bringing you here today to consider this. Well, not only did the Jews in Paul's day hear from God, a second way that they squandered opportunity is seen in verses 19 and 20. They should have understood God. They were given knowledge, but they didn't take it to heart. Verse 19 begins with another rhetorical question, but I ask, did Israel not understand? And again, it's the same form as the question in verse 18. It's stated in a way with a double negative that implies the answer as an emphatic, yes, they did. Or at least, they should have. They should have understood. Specifically, Israel had definite opportunities to know God's saving plan. And so Paul, to prove his point, quotes first from Moses in verse 19. He says, first... Moses says, and then he quotes from the song of Moses, I will make you jealous of those who were not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Now, again, this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1, which is the song of Moses. It's his last statements to the Israelites before they go into the land of promise and he goes up onto the mountain to die. It's called the song of Moses written near the end of his life, written at the command of God. If you go back to chapter 31, verse 19, you'll hear the Lord instruct Moses to do this. He says, now therefore, write this song, teach it to the people of Israel, put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's using the song of Moses as a witness against the people of Israel. The song was written as a prophecy of Israel's future. Again, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, God says, or Moses says to the people, inspired by God, for I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and will turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will not do what is, because you will do what is evil in the sight of God, provoking him to anger through the work of of your hands. Moses clearly told the Israelites that God was going to make them jealous and angry by pouring out his covenant blessings on people who had not been previously privileged with those blessings the way the Israelites were. In other words, God promised to pour his grace out on the Gentiles. The particular purpose for this, as Moses sang, and as Paul highlights in our text, is to provoke Jewish people to jealousy and anger. Now, Paul's going to elaborate this 
in chapter 11, in verses 13 through 16, where he reminds his readers that he is the apostle of the Gentiles. And yet, as the apostle of the Gentiles, his heart's desire is to see Jews, his fellow Jews, saved as well. So do you see what he's doing here at this part of his letter? His fellow Jews regarded Paul as a betrayer of the Jewish faith. They judged him to have forsaken the way of Moses by claiming that Gentiles could experience God's blessing of salvation as Gentiles. So what does Paul do? He quotes Moses to them. He takes their own scriptures and sets it before them. He shows them that they are the ones who are out of step with their own scriptures. They pride themselves in being Moses' disciples. Do you remember when they said that to Jesus in John 9, 28? We're disciples of Moses. And Paul says, oh yeah, really? Well, you should have listened to Moses. You don't even understand what Moses wrote. But Paul doesn't stop with Moses. He goes even further by quoting Isaiah in verse 20. And he does it in a stronger way. You see how he introduces the quote from Isaiah in verse 20? Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So bold. Isaiah speaking in behalf of God. God speaking through Isaiah. And Paul here quotes that and says, Isaiah says it even more boldly. That language he uses there suggests forthrightness. Plainness. Speaking in such a way so that you will not be misunderstood, even to the point of risking giving offense in your plainness. You know, we don't much value plain spokenness in our day. We're a day that prefers kind of nuance and things said not completely directly. We prefer subtly, subtlety, and so much so that when a plain talker shows up and begins to say things as they really are, People are quick to get offended and think, that's so harsh. That's so mean-spirited. It's not sensitive. Yet in Isaiah 65, God is the one who is speaking. He says in verse 1 of Isaiah 65, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. So Paul cites Isaiah 65.1. He reverses the two clauses, but his meaning is very clear. God had told His covenant people that He was going to show favor to people other than the Israelites. He's making an airtight case to His fellow Jews who He longs to see converted to faith in Jesus, saying to them that they are without excuse before God. They were taught in their own scriptures, both in the law, Moses, and in the prophets, Isaiah. They were taught that God would be gracious to people beyond their own borders, beyond their own ethnicity. God's salvation is a salvation that comes by grace alone, not by some kind of natural birthright. Their rejection of Jesus Christ and anger at the inclusion of the Gentiles and God's saving purposes was an indictment on how Ignorant they were of their own Bibles. They should have understood. Brothers and sisters, the same thing can be said of us. 
How many times have we been knocked off course in our spiritual lives by circumstances or difficulties that left us disoriented or even disillusioned with God? Where we've let the thoughts come across our minds and sometimes even across our lips. God hadn't been good. God's forsaken us. God's forgotten us. And yet, when you go back to the Bible and you read it more carefully, you discover that had you paid more attention to what God actually says, you'd be better able to recognize and understand what's going on. I mean, just consider, for example, Peter's warning to us as believers. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When's the last fiery trial you had? Some of you are in a fiery trial right now. Doesn't it seem strange? Isn't our first response to think, why this? This shouldn't be happening. Peter goes on to say, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There are all kinds of statements like this in the Scripture that impress upon us a kind of biblical realism that ought to strengthen us to look at the world the way it really is to remember Christ for who he really is and when things come and they are painful and difficult or uncertain we're not sure what the outcome is going to be it doesn't lead us into questioning God doesn't lead us into rebellion against him How often has God given us opportunities to read and understand his word? And yet we neglect those opportunities. We squander them. Well, that's the indictment that Paul makes against his fellow Jews. One that by his grace we should learn from. They heard from God. They should have understood God. The last point that he makes is the climax of his argument. It's verse 21. They rejected God's gracious invitation God called them he invited them to be reconciled to himself and they refused verse 21 says but of Israel God says all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people this is a quotation taken from the very next verse in Isaiah 65 it's verse 2 the image that is invoked there summarizes God's gracious overtures toward Israel. It's a word picture. It's designed to turn our ears into eyes so that we see what is being described there. The Lord stands in a welcoming posture toward Israel. It's like a father whose son has been deployed in war. And the day of his return is at hand. And so the father goes to the airport and he sees the the plane land and he waits as the son comes down the terminal and we see his son, he stretches out his arms. Why? Because he wants to embrace his son. 
And this is the picture that God gives of Himself in response to His people, the Israelites. He says, all day long, all day long, I've held my hands outstretched to you. All day long, He's called. All day long, He's been ready and willing to forgive. And He maintains this posture, not for a mere moment, but for the whole day. This was God's continuous attitude toward His rebellious Old Testament people. And brothers and sisters, this is God's posture today to rebellious people. To those that have sinned against Him. He displays His grace and mercy in the fact that this is the attitude He has toward disobedient and contrary people. Sinners. People that have rebelled against Him, who have broken His commandments. Rebels against God. People who are described as contrary. Contradictory. Martin Lloyd-Jones says they were cantankerous people. God was fully justified to judge them. To destroy them. To do away with them. But of Israel, Paul says. But of Israel, God says. He's just quoted Isaiah 65.1 to prove that God has granted salvation to Gentiles. In verse 20. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Do you see what he's doing now? God poured out his grace on people who were not looking for him, who had no interest in him, who had none of the advantages the Jews had, while the Jews were being disobedient and contrary to God. And what was God's posture toward his disobedient, cantankerous people? Come to me. I welcome you. I will receive you all day long. We see this same posture in the Lord Jesus. As he wept over Jerusalem. And then as he lamented over that city where he was soon to lose his life at the hands of wicked murderers. In Luke 13, 34, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Whose fault was it that so many Jews in the first century missed God? Was it God's fault? No. It was their own fault. They had so many opportunities to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And yet, they were not willing. They heard from Him. He sent His prophets to them repeatedly. He gave them His law. They had no reason to go on living in ignorance. They should have understood. He made the message of salvation plain to them, yet they rejected His gracious invitation. All day long, He held His arms outstretched to them, ready, willing to receive them, but they would not turn from their sin. They would not trust the Messiah and have life. I wonder if that's true of some of you here today. 
God has set this good news of salvation before you clearly. Some of you have known it from your earliest memory. And yet, you've been satisfied to continue to live without humbling yourself and submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. Others of you have had the blessing of hearing the gospel, learning the truth about the gospel as you've grown more and more in your maturity. And yet, despite God's kindness to you and bringing the gospel to you at a time when you can understand it, a time when you can even articulate it, he stands holding out his arms to you and you refuse to come. You refuse to believe. He invites sinners to receive forgiveness for their sins. He invites people like you and me to find peace and joy and eternal life in him. And yet day by day, so many are content to go on in spiritual darkness, clinging to their sin and resisting the kind, gracious overtures of God who would save them if they would come to Christ by faith. What an incredible picture is given to us of our God. He's so patient. He's so loving. He's so tender. And here we are today with one more opportunity. With another opportunity to hear His voice in His Word. He woke us up this morning. He kept our hearts beating today. He provided for us to join in this gathering of worship. He's put His Word before us. He's directed our attention to this very passage at the end of Romans 10. And once more, He calls upon us to not resist, to not be satisfied to live our own way, but to come to Him. If you've never come to God before through faith in Christ, come to Him now. Believe Christ now. He's provided opportunity for you now. Don't continue in your sin and rebellion against your Creator. Call on the Lord as you are, where you are now, because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Brothers and sisters, there's so many lessons in this passage for us. We have so many reasons to praise God for His grace. Our lives ought to be lives of praise, unhindered praise to God for His grace. We ought to be humble in our relationships to one another in light of these truths. And we should be careful in the way that we live. Think about it for a moment. Why did you turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord? Why did God save you? Because you're so smart? Because you're better than other people? Because you tried harder? Because he knew you'd make a, a better member of his team? No. God saved us by sheer grace. If you're in Christ today, it's grace. It's not anything we bring. It's not anything that we do. It's his electing, regenerating, justifying grace. Apart from these things, we would never have bowed to Jesus Christ as Lord. So, what kind of people should we be? Our lives should be given over to the praise of His glory and grace. We are trophies of God's grace. So we owe Him everything. Well, how then should we relate to other people? 
If this is true, do we have any reason to think ourselves better than other people? Do we have any reason to look down our nose at those that are not like us? As if somehow we're more deserving than they are? No. The more we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the more we must grow in humility toward other people. That question that Paul asked the Corinthians should be ringing in our heads pretty regularly. What do you have that you haven't been given? The answer to that, to that is nothing. If that's true, then why should we look down on others who don't have what we've been given? Our communications, our relationships should be characterized by humility. And that should breed great hope in us. I mean, think about this. If God can save the likes of you and me, He can save anybody. We don't have to look at people and think, yeah, he's too hard, he's too gone, too far gone, she's, she's so hostile. No. There's hope for anyone. Everyone. God is able by His grace to save the chief of sinners. Another lesson that we should learn from God's dealings with His old covenant people Israel is this. If He did not spare them when they hardened their hearts against Him, we should not think He will spare us if we harden ours. It is sobering to consider all the blessings that God poured out on the Israelites throughout Old Testament history. He protected them. He provided for them. He prospered them. And then to look at the ways that they repeatedly fell into spiritual indifference and hard-heartedness against Him. They repeatedly went into the ways of the world. They repeatedly adopted the values, the aspirations, the judgments, the way of thinking, the ethics of the pagan nations around them who did not know God. And what did God do? He withdrew His blessings from that old covenant people and poured them out on others. Brothers and sisters, we must walk wisely. We must be careful in our sensitivity to the Spirit of God. Repentance should be something that is not infrequent in this church. We should live in repentance and faith, reminding each other of our desperate dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone grants salvation to those who follow Him. God's been so good to this church for so long. We must not presume upon His grace. We must not think it's okay to imbibe the world's way of thinking, of valuing, of judging what's important, right, good, or true. But rather, we must guard our hearts and encourage one another to continue to live in complete dependence upon Christ through the ministry of His Word and His Spirit. May the Lord teach us these lessons from His dealings with His old covenant people, Israel, and grant these blessings to us for His sake. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this portion of Your Word where we see how You dealt with the Israelites, those that You blessed for generations under your old covenant. 
And yet, we see how they squandered those blessings. How they did not take advantage of the opportunities you gave them to have your word, your very word. And they misconstrued your word. They got caught up in their own traditions, their own ambitions, thinking themselves to be wise. And they missed Christ. Oh God, would you not work in this congregation to humble us, to make our lives a praise to your glory and grace, to grant us deeper sensitivity to your spirit and dependence upon the Lord Jesus. And would you not cause those who came to join in worship today strangers to your grace? Would you not cause them to consider that you are the God who with outstretched hands stands before disobedient, rebellious people and bids them to be reconciled through Christ. Open their eyes. Show them Jesus. For we pray in His name. Amen.